Hey everyone, welcome to Veterinary Journal Club. I'm excited for today, uh, we have Dr. Sam Campos, uh, she comes back to the show, and we talk about a, a pretty involved uh, article, um, specifically the Surviving Sepsis Campaign International Guidelines for the Management of Septic Shock and Sepsis-Associated Organ Dysfunction in Children. That's the title. Um, it's uh, it's going to be in the Critical Care um, Medicine Journal. And so uh, this is uh, the corollary to the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines that gets put out for people. And because Dr. Campos is um, always, you know, more interested in, you know, the pediatric side of things, maybe not more interested, but also interested in the pediatric side of things. Uh, this is for human, um, you know, sepsis guidelines, but there's a lot that I think we can uh, learn and extrapolate from. And so we get to talk a little bit about what those guidelines are, and uh, I hope you'll enjoy. Hi, and welcome to Veterinary Journal Club. I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Sam Campos, um, and uh, she's back. We're going to do Journal Club a little bit differently today um, in that uh, I I'm not going to be, I, I didn't really read this, I'm going to be honest, um, but, uh, but Sam wanted to come on to talk about the specific subset of the sur Surviving Sepsis Campaign uh, guidelines um, that talks about children, because um, you are interested in pediatrics, in veterinary pediatrics, and this is one of the few things we have that kind of sort of addresses that. So Sam, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, since I already let the cat out of the bag that I didn't read this, I did that. That wasn't on purpose. I it, intentionally it wasn't didn't it was read 55 it. Fifty-five pages. That may have factored in slightly <laughs> to my decision. Um, but um, so why don't you just maybe maybe give everybody a little bit on the surviving sepsis campaign in general, and then this this subset of it. Yeah. So the surviving sepsis guidelines are um, again largely and, and normally generated for adults, um, where they have kind of the they they pull together a lot of the research that's been done, kind of assess and analyze the the, the the research that's out there and kind of come up with a, a subset of guidelines. So the way that they're formulated actually is kind of a not the easiest thing to read because they develop certain questions and then investigate that and then determine the strength of the literature that supports or refutes, refutes those, those um, ideas. So in the same kind of sense, this was the same kind of uh, procedure to evaluate all of this literature. Um, and so for people, um, just as like, I guess, a, a general synopsis of what my, uh, the surviving sepsis guidelines for adults, it's um, usually kind of a proactive, um, quick to use antibiotics within an hour of sepsis diagnosis for those mm -hmm. in septic shock. Um, and then kind of uh, ideally doing things like blood cultures, rapid assessment of a uh, septic patient. Um, and then of course, recommendations for therapy as far as fluid therapy, hemodynamics yeah. and pressors and things like that. So kind of yeah. uh, what we what we do in critical care. Yeah. Um, so they basically they take each of those very specific questions and say, okay, what is the best um, uh, presser, vasopressor to use in a, in a patient that has failed uh, fluid resuscitation, blah, blah, blah. And then they go, okay, we're going to do essentially a meta-analysis or a sy uh, systematic review and let's find all the relevant literature, grade that literature, and then a group of a lot of experts, when you look at the number of authors, get together and they come up with a consensus and they say, this is what our recommendation is. And they're usually pretty good about saying how strong of a recommendation exactly. it is too. Yeah. And so it's formulated with the same kind of thing. They, they'll bring up like a bullet point and then um, kind of come up with their consensus for and then say their rationale, whether this was a yeah. weaker, and then list the, the evidence that supports that. Yeah. But the, I guess the, the different, I guess big difference between the adult surviving sepsis is that a lot of this 
unfortunately, is also like, oh, we empirically do this and we can't, find, right. we don't have research. So it, it's a yeah. kind of frustrating, but a recurrent theme in yeah. the, the neonatal and pediatric field. Um, so a lot of this is like weak evidence at best. Or, for the, specifically for the pediatric yes, guidelines. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. No, I'm very different from the human, the adult right. one where they have lots and lots of uh, studies to support things. Um, the ped side is lacking. Ex- a lot of extrapolation. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We can certainly relate in the veterinary field. Yes. <laughs> Um, but still, somebody's done a lot of work, yeah. And we can we can maybe benefit. So, why is this something that you are interested in? Because you're interested in pediatrics, or because you think that maybe some of this stuff is more applicable to our patients, even even our adult patients? Like, where where do you land on that? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think. For me, it's more, I, I do worry that pediatric and neonates are kind of, uh, not that they're like, I mean, they're still the same species. They're just very different in terms yeah. of their metabolic and we group them yeah, as adults. Yeah, their physiology is different. And I think that um, just even some of the points where it differs from the mm-hmm. human side of things um, is significant enough to tell you that there's a major difference between these guys from their right. fluid requirements to what pressors they respond to. Like, I think yeah. they are vastly different. Yeah. Um, and I think in general, as far as like the veterinary side of things, a lot of it is comfort. Like there are lots of people who yeah. are completely uncomfortable with them because they just think that they're a little like yeah. so delicate they, they can't do it um I kind I, of fall into that yeah. camp a little bit I mean <laughs> I uh, you know not that I'm like I'm so afraid to do anything but I'm just like ah you know I, I know I, I can't treat them just as a, a smaller version of an adult like I know there are differences um but we because maybe because of lack of evidence but I think for me largely because of experience mm-hmm. we don't see as many of them um that it, it is harder for me to feel comfortable um, managing and then there's just the the logistical difficulties of trying to put a catheter in like a tiny tiny little thing and um, everything is just on a smaller scale and um, so it, it does absolutely I, you know I'll admit that um, I'm less comfortable working with especially like, pediatric if they're you know four months old no but I'm talking about like the neonates if they're you know a, a week and a half old I'm like okay all right I can do this you know um, you know uh, but so it is nice to to have something at least to go by to say here's some evidence that this is how things should be adjusted. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, on the, the kind of upswing of that, as much as they are like delicate little different beings, like <laughs> their metabolic rates are, I mean, it, to see something repair itself, like a, a wound yeah. or something in a pediatric patient and the speed at which That's it does point. that compared to like an adult, you're just like, wow, you, you, this is a whole nother beast. That's true. Well, Cause they're in that <laughs> mode anyway, yeah. right? Like yep. we're regenerating tissues or generating tissues. So, um, yeah, that is always nice. Like with fractures and stuff, that's mm-hmm. the one where I'm feeling like, okay, yeah, this will be fine. This will heal. Um, anything else I'm a little bit feeling uh, a, a little less comfortable, but okay, well let's get to the guidelines themselves and, yeah. and maybe you can, uh, we're not going to go through all 55 pages. Don't worry. But, um, <laughs> but maybe you can point out the yeah. things that you, they're the most important take home messages um, from your perspective. Yeah, I'm just going to go through and partly because I don't remember all of it, kind of like uh, walk through the different sections. So um, initially it starts off again, how they talk about their grading and assessing the questions and the, the level of research that supports them. So we'll just kind of bypass all that. Yeah, the methodology is kind of dry. <laughs> um, but one of their first points is um, recognizing your screening for sepsis. That's, That's kind of how point. they start off. And, and, and people, um, again, from the adult um, surviving sepsis guidelines, they know that uh, the mortality rate uh, differs significantly with kind of acute and rapid diagnosis and treatment of sepsis. Um, They also differentiate, um, so in, in people we say, if they have septic shock, um, mm-hmm. again, treating them and getting antibiotics in a one-hour time frame versus if it's generalized sepsis where they're not having the hemodynamic compromise right. within three hours is their general guidelines yeah. for things. Um, and then they also stress on the importance of using cardiovascular 
parameters. And they also talk about things like lactate. So lactate is actually one of the first things they bring up where in people, a lactate of greater than two, which Mm -hmm. is different from what we see in dogs and cats, they get very concerned about could be an early sign of sepsis. So they were investigating whether lactates of two in children could be used as a a parameter to say like, this is something where we're concerned about sepsis in this patient. Um, What they found is that it's not the greatest predictor like they use in adults. So to me, fits more with like, you know, the dogs and cats. Right. Oh, there, there, you know, there might be some hypoperfusion, but not necessarily kind of of the sepsis category. Right. Right. Um, And so for them, what they found, uh, and it was more, um, more the trend or the change in um, lactate was used as an indicator for mortality. Obviously those that improve rapidly were less likely to die than those that didn't or worsened. Right. Um, So is it, is it, do they speculate in here that it's more related to perfusion, like we would say, and less yes. related to sepsis specifically? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So sense. to me, it, it uh, it's like uh, how I would use it in a dog or a cat. Yeah. I wouldn't say, oh, nope, he's you know got a lactate of two and a half. He's in the sepsis category. Right. I wouldn't use it as a defining yeah. thing. But okay. they do say that in general, they'd wish that they could follow more trends yeah. in lactate and pediatrics for them. Yeah. But it, And it could become something in your like collection of tools to diagnose sepsis, but yeah. not like a this is like a cutoff parameter for gotcha. them, which makes sense. I just had a a thought that we probably should have clarified earlier. Um, So, you know, there's a big difference in, in, within pediatrics between like neonates or infants, like we'd be talking about in people versus like a 13 year old child. Do they, do they make uh, distinctions in this between those categories? In some points they do. So like when they're talking about um, hypotension in particular, Mm -hmm. they mention what they define hypotension based on the age of the, of the child. So like, I think less than a year old hypotension is less a map of less than 50 um, up to, I think it was a couple years. So like an an infant um, or toddler, um, a map of 60. And then once they're over five years of age, a map of 70 and they use those as their qualifiers for hypotension. But in points like the lactate, they didn't, they they didn't stratify a neonate or pediatric group. But I mean, presumably that is also going to be on like a sliding scale. The closer you are to adulthood, the more that that might be a predictor. And, but you're kind of on your own as the practitioner for us. I mean, at least the, the neonatal slash pediatric period is, is shorter. (laughs) We're not talking about years of a span. Um, um, but okay, good. I just, I'd forgotten to make that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, again, I think it's what they have data wise. So yeah, sometimes they just, if they have the information to stratify it, they do. And if not, you're good luck. Most (laughs) of this seems to reference like pediatric is the word, which I think it references over a year old routinely. And then occasionally it's like peppered with, with neonate stuff in here. So I think it's predominantly the, the, an older subset. Makes sense. Um, and then let's keep going. Um, then their next category is like antimicrobial therapy. Yeah. And so the, the septic bundle, if you will, that they mentioned mm-hmm. in the uh, adult guidelines where again, that kind of one hour time frame and starting them on broad spectrum antibiotics with the recommendation that if you can get blood cultures, you do. Yeah. Um, but not if it's going to, um, further or, um, delay the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah delay yeah. The, the, the antibiotic yeah. exposure. And it, it's the same thing for them where they're recommending, you know, be it as, uh, prompt as you can and giving them antibiotics and try and get blood cultures. Um, the antimicrobial therapy in general, they recommend a pretty broad, um, category of antibiotics, which I thought was interesting. And I think this is moving into one that's further down is that they categorized, um, children based on their exposure. So similar to people, like if you're immunocompromised, your normal hospital acquired infections. Um, and what I didn't kind of consider again, probably because I don't know enough about human pediatrics, depending on the age of the patient, it's again, where they stratify them, their concerns about what the more likely thing is to cause a problem. Um, yeah. So like in their neonates, they were talking about listeria, um, and brand new babies being a big cause of concern. I guess that makes sense with milk and, and Mm -hmm. that's the big contaminant. Um, Okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then like herpes virus for 
uh -huh. fairly young babies too. And so they actually mm -hmm. recommend, and again, I think this is thir further along in here, like empiric antibiotics or yeah. um, and antivirals for the, the neonates that get septic. Yeah. So I think it was like um, acyclic liver is what they were using yeah. okay. for potential herpes infection in, in them as well too. Um, and then of course they talk about the patients that are immunocompromised. So right. one that have gone through surgery before they're getting chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. Um, those guys kind of, um, they would potentially recommend double dipping in terms of antibiotics. So yeah. adding polymicrobial antimicrobials for yeah. those guys too. And in general for the non-immunocompromised septic patient, they're yeah. just saying you can, you can start with one antibiotic rather than others, but right. very similarly, they talk about the, this de-escalation yeah. as well. That's, I think the thing that for me is so important when it comes to, cause you know that the antimicrobial stuff is kind of a pet peeve of mine anyway, yeah. but um, I think it's not that when you have like a really sick patient, a septic patient or the one that you suspect is septic, it's not that I don't want to go for the big guns. It's that I don't want to go for the big guns and then leave them there when the evidence later suggests that we don't need to keep those. So going for imipenem or, or something like that initially seems totally fine in a patient who's dying. Like, let's let's pull out all the stops. But then when you get the culture back that says actually ampicillin would be fine, you need to switch to ampicillin. Exactly. And we don't. We go, oh, the, 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 you know, the imipenem is working, therefore we'll just continue. No, 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 no. That's actually not the right um, strategy. Um, and so going big initially and then de-escalating is the key. And, you know, again, it, I'm just kind of glancing through this now, but, you know, the evidence for all of these recommendations, so like strong recommendation, weak evidence. Um, but a lot of it, like you said, is, is extrapolated. So theoretically, that makes sense anyway. Yeah. And it's the same. They recommend a like 48 hour time frame for you readdressing like in that window yeah. because you should theoretically have at least some some preliminary positive, stuff yeah, yeah. Um, to reevaluate your culture. And then it, it yeah. does. It talks about like deescalating if you're not getting growth on your cultures, but then goes into the wide range of those that don't culture positive or right. have antibiotics before, too. So. Yeah. Or it makes you wonder, yeah, did they were they pre-treated? with antibiotics before they got sick or is it, um, or could it even be like this whole thing is a virus? Um, but right. yeah. So I imagine that would factor in like, are they immunocompromised? This is, is this a, you know, pediatric oncology patient yeah. where, you know what, we're, you know, maybe we can deescalate to something less, you know, big gun, but, um, but maybe we still keep them on something yeah. and, um, they're yeah. also aggressive with like antifungals, but again, this is yeah. in the category of those that were immunocompromised gotcha. in hospital or those that are yeah. on like chemotherapy or something like that. Yeah. So not the, 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 um, pediatric patient that comes in from like the outside world and right. is diagnosed with sepsis. Community acquired uh, yeah. something, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, they're again, like they scale down, they can use like, one sense. class of antibiotics versus the one that gets sick either in hospital or immunocompromised. Yeah. They kind of throw a lot more at them and then wait for their cultures it's to actually come back. Something that I've, I've noticed in human medicine when it comes to sepsis is that they are are a lot quicker to use empiric antifungals yeah. than we do. Yep. And um, when I was training, we had in our we had a sepsis uh, protocol. Like if you suspected a patient had sepsis, then it was like if this isn't happening, then do this. And then it, by this time, if this isn't happening, do this. And it was actually it was really helpful. But one of the things was consider um, adding antifungals. Um, fluconazole was something that we would potentially add, even without any evidence of it being a fungal infection, um, because there's some evidence in people that it can help. And is it because that medication does something we don't know, or or is it because we have these subclinical, you know, maybe opportunistic fungal infections? It's actually really interesting um, that there's so much about the, the fungal infections that we don't know. But I think a lot of it because of like the AIDS epidemic, a lot of more fungal yep. infections became more in the forefront. Um, and so, yeah, they're just a lot quicker to do empiric antifungal. Mm -hmm. So that's... They mentioned... I, I almost never have done that. Candida in here yeah. throughout it as, an, as a big yeah. concern for these little guys too. So I think that they are... That's that weird. and like the antiviral kind of like yeah. was one of those... We don't we do not do this. In the right. We, we, I feel like we assume if it's septic, it's bacterial and that's the only one there is. And it's like, actually, yeah. there's a lot of other pathogens. Yeah. And honestly, I've had now... 
I mean, four over what the, the past like nine or nine years, eight years, whatever, Something however like long that. I've been out here. Yeah. Um, of uh, um, blanking on the word now, like fungal infection post yeah. um, uh, foreign body surgery. Yeah. Especially yeah. those that have multiple recuts, mm-hmm. which there's a lot yeah. of case studies that show that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I wonder with those guys too, if they're like, you know, yeah. how, how often do we do fungal cultures? I mean, almost never. Never. Not in those cases. Right. Like if it, there are certain cases where we go, oh, this fits with these criteria, blah, blah, blah. But in something that like a hospital acquired right. fungal infection On is not something we're talking it's about. It's been cut twice for yep. surgery. And like I've now, I've now had two of them and like the prognosis isn't, isn't great for those yeah. guys either. And just being on antibiotics increases right. your risk of right. getting a fungal infection. Exactly. It makes sense, right? You wipe out the, the bacteria, then the fungus is like, you know, the, the candida, whatever. Um, the yeast is like, woohoo, it's, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's free, uh, you know, buffet. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> um, okay, not to go off on a, a crazy yeah. tangent, yeah. but I think that's it's always an interesting point. We, we often, I think, in veterinary medicine forget about the other uh, category of pathogens. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then sticking with the antibiotics, and again, now I'm probably being a little bit sloppy here because I'm probably going into the other categories, but they also talk about the way we administer antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Um, yeah, I think that's, it's, I mean, it's yeah. awesome because it mentions all the different things that we know affect antibiotics. So they're sick. Do they have organ dysfunction that's going to affect their liver or kidneys if yep. either of those are responsible mm-hmm. for clearing the drug? Mm-hmm. Um, their albumin's usually low because they're critically yep. ill. Yep. And then, you know, their volume of distribution's altered, leaky vessels, yep. like all of those things kind of come into play. And so it didn't actually give you like you must do all these things they, they do a lot of drug testing i think right. for peaks and yep. troughs and, mm-hmm. and people and so mm-hmm. that that can be used as a guideline for them yeah um but a lot of times what they're recommending is a cri yeah. of antibiotics yeah. in general which is so cool yeah well especially if you're talking about um you know time dependent killing drugs mm-hmm. i've you know for a concentration dependent killing drug i'm not sure that makes sense in fact it might be worse yes um but so specifically for time dependent killing drugs so you, you know your penicillins and things like that um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I love CRIs anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Just so. to keep it in like a therapeutic range the whole time. The, the downside, which they didn't um, mention, um, I don't know if they're less concerned. I, I am just because they're so tiny, but like blood volumes. And again, yeah. I, I don't know the amount of blood volume you need for drug testing, but yeah. um, just with these little guys, and especially if you're titrating mm-hmm. on like a daily basis, this yeah. can add up in terms of total blood volume that you're taking from them. But just considering, you know, constant rate infusions of antibiotics is, is again, it's not routine. Yeah. And yep. so it's something I think to consider for those um, time-dependent killing drugs. So yeah. Yeah. That's fun. Um, then, what does it go to like source control after that? Yeah, I believe so. Which I can't imagine. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm imagining why would that be different well, in yeah. pediatrics? And I can't feel like it come up with a reason why it would about be. like cutaneous and then like implants. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah, and, and, I guess kids break bones a lot. Maybe yeah, is that maybe. what they're thinking? With I, implants? It didn't mention. <laughs> it just mentions implants in huh. here. So okay. I don't know what, where that comes from. The other thing that they mentioned is the central lines in these guys uh-huh. um, because I think most of them are t- teeny tiny, don't have a lot of yeah. uh, vessels, and so pulling yeah. the central lines if you're concerned about a bloodborne infection, gotcha. but it's it's like it tells you to address kind of where you think the source is coming from. Oh, okay. So like, like maybe that. maybe a patient who was hospitalized before yes. and then now it's becoming septic. Right. Gotcha. Okay, right. that makes sense. Um, yeah, but I was just trying to figure out like why that, I can't imagine that that's dramatically different between adults. No. But I, then I think fluid therapy comes next, which seems yeah, like it would be a lot different. It was. So the <laughs> yeah. fluid therapy I think was really interesting. They had um, 
so we talked about the blood pressure mm-hmm. time points for or, or measurements for each of those. Um, and they don't re- like recommend aggressive, which fits with what we do, yeah. like no bolus fluid therapy, unless yeah. they're actually hypotensive right? because yep. we, we're worried about the organ edema that we mm-hmm. can cause that can worsen their signs. Yep. Um, and then when it talked about bolus therapy, it used much higher like doses, if you will, of yeah. fluids, which I thought was interesting. So yeah. they were going with um, doses of the 20 to 40 mil per kig in like the first hour. Um, yeah. And then if you're not seeing a response at that point yeah. and you think the patients you hydrated and got that level of dosing, putting them on a, on a presser yeah. if they're still persistent. So basically like don't, don't take a lot of time trying to get their volume up. Like right. boom, hit them hard right. with bolus, like all of it right up front almost. And then if that didn't work, switch to pressers quickly. Yeah, which okay. I think, I mean, the, cool. the bolus wise, knowing that they're so much more, their, their bodies themselves are so much more water, percent yeah. water than right. human. I'm assuming that's why, because, you know, we're used to like the 10 to 20 mil per yeah. gig yeah. Um, shock bolus therapy, if but, you will. like, but, I mean, we know that, you know, neonates and pediatrics have a higher maintenance rate, so they're losing right. more. So maybe, maybe they're also more susceptible to like severe dehydration or, or hypovolemia faster from mm-hmm. that because their metabolic rates are higher. I don't know. Yeah. It was, Makes it sense was kind to of me, interesting though. though. And then they have the, um, the world health organization comes in and says that they, um, discusses their like shock criteria, um, such as cold extremities, prolonged mm-hmm. CRT, uh, weak, fast pulse, and, and obviously noted a greater mortality in infants that had fell in that category. They actually re- recommended, um, smaller doses like of, of the okay. like 10 to 20, but then they said okay. go up to 40 mil per gig. Right. And then okay. at that point consider pressors gotcha. for them. But I think that in general, the theme seems to be, be fairly aggressive with more aggressive than you might front. be with a, with an yeah. adult. And as similarly to what we do, they recommended against the use of like starch products, at least, especially in yeah. that initial one to two hours of trying yeah. to stabilize them. So just sticking with crystalloids and trying to see what they do volume wise with that and blood pressure wise. Cool. Um, there was also another note about fluid selection, um, which they didn't have great evidence for. So in the people, the adult side of things, they yeah. um, frequently recommend like a buffered crystalloid solution. So mm-hmm. like lactated ringers is the yep. big one that we use yep. um, over like a 0.9% saline yeah. fluid. Um, and from this, they, they didn't see a difference when they had um, infants that were given the buffered or the mm-hmm. um, 0.9% saline. But I think they um, extrapolated and said from the from the adult side of things, we would yeah. just stick just with a, buffer, sense. a yeah. buffered solution. Is it the buffering or is it the chloride? I always assume it's the I, chloride. I mean, but that's what all the, the note yeah. is from the AKI. Yeah. They, they didn't yeah. notice in the kids that were given 0.9% saline that they had a different rate of AKI, which gotcha. I think in people, that's the big thing is yeah. that the chloride is, is attributed right. to the AKI okay. in these critically ill patients. So we, we don't really know, but it makes sense. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sounds fair. Um, okay. This is uh, hemodynamic monitoring is the next one on my list. And that's the one that for me is exciting because that's where these patients are more like all of our patients, not just our pediatric yeah. patients, because it's like, hey, you might have a harder time. And I don't know, maybe, again, didn't read this, but I, my hope is that they go into a little bit more like just the logistical difficulties of monitoring in these kids. No? no? Oh, no. no. So they, they brought up um, they brought up a bunch of different techniques. So they, they mentioned okay. like measuring the mean arterial pressure. Okay. They don't specify whether they're doing like direct or indirect on these guys, which I thought kind of, again, from this side of things, I'm like, yeah. how, do you, how do you do that? Right? Like, how, where are you getting blood pressures on these brand new like yeah. teeny tiny babies? Um, but then they talk about kind of the other things that we do like cardiac index um, and then um, central venous oxygen and measuring yeah. those things yeah. um, and then uh, CVP as well, measuring those things and then consider, right. So some of this was like huh. fairly aggressive. Okay. 
again, aggressive in my world. Yeah. We don't, we don't do those things. Well, and also, I mean, the CVP thing has kind of fallen by the wayside in adults. So same way here. Okay. Um, so they, okay. they didn't think that it, it great, it gave, um, not, uh, not a strong recommendation. Right. For yep. That one. Yep. And it didn't really guide therapy. So they wouldn't, gotcha. it, they said it didn't, it didn't tell you what their left uh, ventricular volume gotcha. was doing. So they wouldn't suggest using it okay. in a patient. Got it. Um, the SVO2, they said is a good like subset to add to your, your hemodynamic monitoring, but okay. again, wasn't and aiming for at least 70%. Hmm. Um, um, but didn't didn't really your SO2 like your SVO2 the central venous okay O2. gotcha yeah, gotcha yeah, yeah. okay um, but again it was just like it's it's not a strong recommendation yeah. for that either yeah. um, and so then they which um, it, it, it again mentions the blood lactate looking for trends mm-hmm. in it so I, I was actually kind of disappointed that they didn't have some new like more advanced technique to measure things or look yeah. at things yeah. um, and these little guys um, the other thing that they bring up is these like warm or cold classifications of babies, like as far as like the warm or cold shock, which I was like, that is that, that to me sounds very, um, um, rudimentary, I guess. Yeah. I don't, um, I, I don't know what that means. Explain that. So me. they were talking about cold shock being almost like to me, what seemed like a more cardiogenic shock where okay. they weren't perfusing things, their extremities were cold uh-huh. uh, versus warm shock was okay. more of a septic like shock. Like a vasodilator. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Okay. Um, and, but then huh. they, they go on to mention that people, that babies with warm shock still can have cardiogenic dysfunction, which yeah. I mean, they do in sepsis. We know that. Yeah. Um, so they said, we don't really recommend this whole categorizing by warm or cold shock, which yeah, I, that seems I, weird. Was, yeah. Yeah. Like we don't either. <laughs> uh, yes. We already have names for all these types of shock. <laughs> we have, yeah, like make them more basic, right. I guess. I know sometimes in this in this group, they are trying to like make it very step-by-step easy. Anybody right. can look right. at this and make sense of it. But yeah, maybe yeah. that was one that we didn't have a problem with. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But I, I, I too was hoping that there'd be some like great new, like, by the way, there's this awesome tool that we use and this is how we screen for blood pressure things. Yeah. But it was mainly no. like, here's a map. So I still don't know how they yeah. how they check maps in babies. So I'll Google that when I... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, going, I'm but. guessing they're, they're prior, you know, if it's a baby in you know, the NICU or whatever, it probably does have a bunch of instruments yeah. that like cause the people that do that stuff are kind of amazing. Right. But, yeah. But I have um, to, I have to wonder, cause when you get, especially if you, if you know they're bacteremic and you're pulling all these I things know. out, at what point do you, you can't monitor them and you're yeah. stuck pulling things out know. of them as part of their, you know, I don't know. I don't, well, yeah. I'm glad other people do this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, their pressors were also another interesting and different point because we know um, from people with sepsis, like right. norepi, yep. is like the number you know, one, the yeah, number one go-to. presser that we use. There's not a study of like norepi yeah. versus anything else in pediatrics. There's mm-hmm. a study on epi versus dopamine, okay, um, in which they found that epi was better. Yep. Um, and then they've kind guess. of pulled norepi because in the adults it's the the drug of choice, and so right. they say you can do epi or norepi are the two pressors yeah. that you can it's use for a septic patient. Um, and then I had numbers here, um, and again, it was empiric because they were looking at what each, uh, the people who weighed in to help kind of create these guidelines yeah. were like, um, a certain percentage of them chose epi over nor epi, yeah. um, which I thought was interesting. I feel like I don't, I can't even explain to you why, but I feel like if I were doing pediatric, I would go with epi first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the bulk majority picked epi over nor yeah. epi. And, and I, I couldn't even necessarily tell you why that would be my choice, but for something in the back of my head seems like it, because it's the more basic one, I would just. I don't know. I feel like that's what I would go with. And that's, that's dumb in a lot of ways. I mean, it's nice that I'm in good company, but, um, 
but I, I, I couldn't even tell you why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one thing is clear is that the dopamine isn't the right choice. No <laughs> dopamine. Got it. Yes. Um, um, they did on that study find that they had like an increased mortality rate in the, in the kids yeah, that were and, okay. and uh, less, I guess, days free of organ dysfunction gotcha. in, the, in the kids who were on dopamine. Do they talk about dobutamine at all? And is that like something, mm. do, do they, do they tend to get the cardiac dysfunction and sepsis that so you they, do in adults? So they do. And that's why they are actually recommending the over dopamine doing the epi versus okay. um, yeah, epi yeah, to have you're going to have. Yeah. Ionotropy with that. Cool. Yeah. That makes sense. Maybe that's what the back of my brain was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, they mentioned the same kind of concern with them becoming um, like fluid overloaded. Yeah. So, like moving again that 40 to 60 mil guideline and moving yeah. towards pressors rather than like throwing tons and tons of crystalloid right. at them. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. I mean, there's there's a lot more things in here, but it starts to, I think, get a little bit, and you get into the weeds. Um, yes. I feel like we've covered a lot of the big stuff. Is there anything else that you're like, oh, wait, no, this is this is crucial. This is something we need to think about. Um, so, I mean, another cool thing that I, the, the next section is their, cool things long, too. Yeah. their ventilator section. Yeah. Um, and then they also talk about Cersei and stuff in here. So definitely, if okay. you guys are interested, keep reading it. But um, what I thought was kind of cool is when they're talking about the ventilators, they are apt to move them towards the ventilator before they go into respiratory distress. Yep. Um, which again, like one of our indications for ventilator. Yeah is a hemodynamic compromise. So if yep. they find that they, they can't, they'll do that. They share the same concerns with giving them anesthetics to get them on the ventilator. Right. It could cause them to crash. Mm-hmm. Um, so they talk about using CPAP in these guys okay. too as like their first means. Um, and also concerns about drug-wise, like Atomidate, mm-hmm. which we think is a nice cardiovascular stable drug for yeah. inducing. Um, they do worry about the adrenal insufficiency and it seems like gotcha. a high rate of that occurring. So that's a, oh, a no-go for okay. them as well. No Atomidate. Is, yeah, right. two other interesting notes. That's fun. So um, do they mention anything, and I'm going back to my residency where yeah. the high frequency oscillatory ventilation was something that was big in like neonates um, at the time. And I haven't frankly followed much up on that. Mm-hmm. Do they discuss the difference between standard mechanical ventilation mm-hmm. versus high frequency oscillatory? Um, I mean, not prominently. It's, it's they I'm did guessing. bring it up. Um, they, they were unable to provide like a recommendation gotcha. for it. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. I just always think that stuff's cool. Like from <laughs> just like a physics and physiology standpoint, like how it works. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, mm-hmm. but it's, um, I just saw it once in like an experimental, like in a pig model. Um, and it was, it was pretty cool because the chest was open and you can actually see the lungs and they never deflate. They huh. just sort of vibrate a little bit. And it was like, it, but then you could watch the CO2 and it changes. You're like, well, how is this working? And it kind of <laughs> like blew my mind a little bit. Um, and and the, the guy that we were talking to at the time, this was at, at Duke University, and he was saying that... Um, the you know it, they really like it in neonates and, and pediatrics and fence things like that but like the parents it's like hard for them to, to see the it. kids that way yeah. at, for whatever reason um, which I imagine it'd be hard to see your child like on a ventilator anyway yeah. but like they're like it, it looks like they're not breathing and that's really distressing for parents and things like that and and it like I was in like a little bit distressed looking at the pig too so I can get that you know <laughs> like I'm very detached here but like but it was also really fascinating so that that's my little snippet why I wanted to know um, but it doesn't surprise me that there's not evidence. Yeah. Um, um, but so it sounds like um, uh, we do have to think about adrenal insufficiency and maybe more so in the young ones yes. than in adults. So that's probably important, an important yeah. thing to yeah, know. Yeah, I was surprised by the, the rates they were seeing yeah. that and their concern with atomidate. It's interesting. Because honestly, I, we, we use it intermittently. Yeah, but yeah, not a ton, but... Awesome. Well, this this was a lot to go through, and we kind of crammed it into a pretty quick session. But um, but I think you know I think that's really helpful. And like I said, a lot of us, myself included, get rather intimidated um, when it comes to to pediatrics. And then you add sepsis in the mix, um, and it, it just you know it gets like ah okay, what do we do? Um, so I mean, it, there's not a ton of evidence out there, which is disappointing. But also, uh, you know, that's a that's a thing we're pretty comfortable with in veterinary medicine. Um, but it's nice to at least say that people went through and recognize yeah, there, there's and like a difference. Highlighting that we don't. Have 
have yeah. these things. Just give someone, yeah, you want to look for areas that we need improvement? All these weak recommendations. Right. right. Yeah, <laughs> there's plenty plenty of options. Um, and uh, uh, But yeah, I think there's there's a lot that we can we can pull from this and, and borrow and extrapolate like we often do. But So thank you so much yeah, for no coming problem. and talking about this and advocating for the young ones like you always do. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, if uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed this talk as much as I did, and uh, hopefully you'll come back. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. Thanks for listening to today's show. I'd like to thank Topher, my producer. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Vet Journal Club. Our website is veterinaryjournalclub.fireside.fm. Email us with questions, comments, or show ideas at veterinaryjournalclub at gmail.com. And remember to check back weekly for new episodes, and we'll catch you next time.